Hello, welcome to another edition of Hartford's Literary Podcast. I'm Emma Smith, I'm the fellow librarian and I teach English and I'm absolutely delighted to be talking uh, with Claire McGowan, not least because I uh, was up until about one o'clock in the morning uh, reading um, one of her latest novels, The Push, which is a really extraordinary page turner. Uh, and uh, and I you know I, I I was doing it actually for prep, but I couldn't put it down. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking to her about that and about the other crime novels and her other uh, literary writing. But uh, Claire, thanks so much for being with us. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for the kind words about the book. Well, there's going to be plenty more. I can tell you. Um, tell us first about you, you and Hartford, and uh, when you know when you're here, uh, and what you have done since then. So I, I turned up to Hartford in 2000, um, about this time of year, I guess. But it was, it was into October, I think, because of the late terms. Um, and the first time I'd ever been to Oxford was a year before that for interviews. So I had never been to the university before I applied. And I remember arriving for my interview quite late. And it was dark and kind of walking around the corner into Radcliffe Square and seeing the Radcliffe camera and just being kind of overwhelmed by it and deciding at that point, well, I need to try and come here. But... I didn't think I would get in, so it was quite... I think you actually interviewed me, didn't you, Emma? So. I did, yeah. So you read English and Modern Languages, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, and what, what about... We're going to come back to some sort of Hartford memories, but what, what are some of the highlights or, or even lowlights of, of what you've done since you left Hartford? So I, I worked... I just had a normal job for a few years. I worked in the charity sector, but I was always wanting to write a book and I'd sort of been writing on and off for years and I had lots of notebooks full of scribbles and kind of convinced myself I wouldn't be able to do it even though I was only 25 at this point so I don't know what I was thinking uh, I also hadn't really tried or shown my work to anyone so I um when I was about 25 I decided I need to try and finish a book so I worked on that for a couple of years and when I did finally finish it it was such a wonderful moment I think it was one of the best moments still in my writing life even though I actually have, have so far not published that book um, and then I wrote something else quite quickly and then I got a publishing deal from that I was probably 29 at that point so when my book came out I was 30 which is I think still pretty young actually for a writer yeah abs- absolutely and so did you how did you come to uh, sort of crime fiction or psychological thrillers, or well, first I'd like to know sort of how you would how how would you define that aspect of your writing? I'll call it crime fiction, yeah, just as a kind of umbrella term for anything. Yeah, and and was that always what you were going to write, or did you come to that? Mm. Um, not at all. No, I was very clueless about what I was doing. The book I spent years writing was lit- literary fiction. I think most people often go straight to literary fiction when they begin writing. Uh, and then the second book that I wrote was sort of accidentally a thriller. I didn't actually know it was a thriller. It's just how it came out. So I was quite surprised when they it was acquired by an editor who said, oh, this is obviously crime. And I was I was quite taken aback by that. But I know now that that's actually a really good thing because there's such a fantastic market for, for crime fiction. And actually, I've always really enjoyed reading it. So it kind of makes sense, I suppose, that I would write it. Um, I've written other things too, but it, it's probably still my favourite genre. What do you think? I mean, this is such a huge question, but it's so fascinating. Um, not least because I guess it's one of the things people have read a lot during lockdown has been crime. I've heard a lot of people talking about reading sort of golden age crime mm-hmm. fiction and going back to the world of Agatha Christie or something, which in some ways is so disrupted and so full of 
you know, wickedness and awful things happening, but it's also so orderly because mm. in narrative terms it all gets it all gets sorted out. I don't find that your books I mean there are there are things in your books uh, I was thinking about the, the the books you've written about about the north of Ireland and about the sort of uh consequences, long term consequences of the troubles and um that that seems to be about uh, quite a, well if I might say a very sort of grown-up sense of crime fiction that there are some things that can't you know can't just be discovered and put right and the, yeah. there's a lot more there's a lot more gray in the world than sort of black and white yeah that's interesting I, I often go back to Agatha Christie myself for a comfort read um, I often read them around Christmas um, and I find they actually stand up quite well to rereading because I can never remember what happened <laughs> it's a bit, they're a bit sort of like enjoyable but not memorable experiences and yeah, I suppose one thing I really enjoy about crime fiction is that you can use it as a way to explore some very difficult issues about our current society and the past while still being entertaining. So hopefully people sort of enjoy the story, but there's an important message in there as well. So I've been trying my first book, the one that didn't get published, actually was a lot about, it was also set in Northern Ireland and it was about family and religion and history. And I think I've just, with crime fiction, just looking at all of those same issues, but in a slightly more gripping format, hopefully. Yeah, so tell tell us about your sort of detective figure uh, in, in in that series of books about about northern set, set in Northern Ireland. Uh, so it's a forensic psychologist, um, and really, there's some of the things I have for doing a forensic psychologist wouldn't really do, but I took a bit of leeway, um, and I sort of invented a kind of special unit that she was working in because um, I'm very interested in missing persons. So the books are a lot about missing persons rather than murder. Um, sometimes there is murder, but but not always. I'm just sort of quite interested by the endless possibilities when someone is missing, that they could still be alive or they could have gone voluntarily. So she's sort of, um, I just made her the same age as me. So when the books start, she's about 30, which seems quite young to me now. <laughs> Classic kind of good at her job, but extremely chaotic personal life. So kind of cannoning around all over the place, getting into trouble. Um, but the books are actually in, in development for TV. So, you know, nothing, nothing definite yet, but it, it is kind of, moving along and there is a script being written so that's really exciting will you wh- wh- how much input will you have I mean obviously huge input because you wrote the books but how much input into the tv adaptation will you have well so far nothing actually I've not even met the company um probably because of covid but I would hope that if it got off the ground I would have more inputs and maybe be able to do an episode at some point because I do write scripts as well that would be amazing. I was thinking that um, she's gone back. She's gone back to Northern Ireland, hasn't she? she, she that, that's part of what what the deal is with her and her. Partly that's a symptom and partly a kind of cause of the chaos in her life. And I was, I was wondering about how, how that fits with with you. Have you ever thought that you would go back to live there? Um, do you know? Do you spend much time there? Uh, I thought about it briefly um, about maybe about ten years ago, but I think I'm very I'm very settled here. And I obviously haven't been able to go back very much over the last year or so. I've only been back twice in the last year and a half, I'd say. But my parents still live there, so I think I have, feel like I have quite a strong connection still. Um, and it's been like since I left. So I left in 2000, which was just two years after the end of the Troubles. So things were really not great still in terms of investment. And there was still a fair amount of violence. So the, in the time that I've been away, Northern Ireland has really transformed. And it seems to have become quite a cool place almost like I'm always a little bit shocked when people go to Belfast for a mini break because when I was growing up Belfast had nothing and it was full of soldiers and was terrifying so I find that really strange the um the push is um is set in in London um and I was just struck by you saying that you go back to Agatha Christie because obviously what Christie 
to me does brilliantly is and, and sort of weirdly is these sort of strange plots and um the execution of the crime is often you know extremely elaborate and has to be unpicked in these elaborate ways by Poirot or whoever mm-hmm. but she's not good at character whereas I think you are really good at character and I think the push is a really you know good example of that I and mean, it's a good example of what you also mentioned about you know not dealing with that's the wrong I think that's the wrong phrase but approaching issues or raising issues which is about infertility uh infertility treatment and and stuff but in some ways, the crime in the push, which I'm, I'm not going to, it's a really great page turner, so I'm not going to spoil it. But it's not, that's not really the main focus almost. It's it's more that sort of very disparate group of women and their partners who have come together. Yeah. Because they're all, you know, they're all having babies. Yeah, so I'm very interested in sort of group dynamics. Um, I'm very interested in sort of the dark side of middle class aspirations. So I really enjoy kind of poking fun at um, that side of things and I'm also very interested in the same event seen from different standpoints so the first thriller I did for Amazon stand- standalone called What You Did that's actually partly set at Oxford so that is the same kind of thing it's about something that happens with a sort of group of friends at a university reunion and all the different viewpoints of everyone that was there that gradually builds up to what might be the truth. Yeah that's uh, that's really on, on display um in in this novel that I yeah that I have just read does that does that require you to be sort of sympathetic I was interested that you write scripts because I feel as if scripts in in my sort of professional critical world that what I always say about about drama is it it has to make all of its characters equally plausible mm-hmm. you can't you're, you're not seeing it from all from one person's point of view you're trying to animate these different uh consciousnesses and how they see the world huge amount of suspense in crime fiction often comes down to point of view like who, you know, who, whose point of view are we hearing from who knows what um and i think like structure really comes into it yeah so that's something to think about quite carefully when i'm writing the book is how um, how am i going to structure this and every book is different um so i've just written another one that's all told by the same character but it in the first person but it's two different timelines so you don't even necessarily know to begin with that that is the same person you can probably guess, but at very different points in their life. That's such an interesting sort of structural uh, device in crime fiction, isn't it? The sort of, in part, the job of the reader, the detective work the reader has to do is to understand how all these different bits of narration fit together and whether they are the same person or whether, yeah. Yeah, and hopefully that creates suspense because you're wondering, well, how, how do these connect up? Yes, yeah, yeah that's absolutely true. You, absolutely, you know that they must connect, yeah. That's so interesting hearing hearing you talk about how you um, sort of plot and, and structure. Because one one other thing I wanted to ask you about was um, sort of teaching writing. Because I know you do a lot of that, mm-hmm. um, and I suppose that's one of the old chestnuts, isn't it? Can you teach creative writing? La la la. You know, Oxford has been very uh, resistant to teaching creative writing as part of English literature teaching, which most other universities now do absolutely routinely. Um, Tell me about you know your take on on what what it is you're you're teaching when you do those workshops with less experienced writers. Well, one thing I don't know is if you I've never known whether you can teach people how to have ideas because I've always had loads of ideas. Like since I was a child, I was I probably had a new idea for something every couple of ideas a week probably, and I've got great notebooks full of just loads and loads and loads of ideas that never got off the ground. And I'm just talking about fiction here, obviously. So if you don't have those kind of ideas, I don't know if you can teach that. But I think you can definitely teach the techniques. So things like, I've just been talking about like structure, viewpoint, 
um, you can certainly improve your prose as well. So um, a lot of my teaching, I think, was partly those techniques of like, I think about how to structure the book. And sometimes it's just about seeing what other people do, which is why I always try to get my students to read as much as possible particularly current crime fiction because there's not really a huge amount of point in reading loads of Agatha Christie you know it'll be very enjoyable but it won't teach you very much about the current market and that's that's striking that it's both the market and the thing you know the the, the work itself that you're not sort of precious about in, in some way that the kind of well how do I put this because you are you, you're a really great writer I think you're a great prose stylist and I want to know how you help people improve their prose because I think let's let's start with that how do you help people improve their prose I think it's a re- relentless criticism <laughs> just of um I have certain things I get really hung up about so things like um like dangling modifiers and punctuation I have a huge thing about punctuation I think people think it doesn't matter but I really think it hugely matters actually it's the way that you even if you're not reading it aloud, the way you punctuate it to yourself, the way you pause and stop to breathe, I think can hugely change the feel of a piece. So I think partly it's instinctive. So when I'm editing my own work, I'm just trying, kind of like constantly trying to improve the sentence, but I don't know if I have any rules for that. Uh, but I have things like, for example, I wouldn't, I would try not to use the same word too many times in quick succession. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I, 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 I'm always alert to that in in uh, in my prose too. Um, and that is about having a voice, I think, as well. So, like, trying to encourage people to write with voice rather than just write sort of clear but slightly dull prose. Yeah, because this a lot of your work seems to me not in the first person, but nevertheless with aspects of what technically we would call free and direct discourse. Yeah, so I use that kind of bit. Yeah, and I use sort of. Um, so that's another thing I was always trying to get people to figure out was the difference between sort of direct thoughts and indirect thoughts, and how you can use direct. If, if a character's on their own, for example just thinking about things I would always encourage them to use a little bit of direct thoughts because it's like a, a dialogue with yourself and what what's your take on uh, sort of writing in the present tense uh, I'm not a huge fan actually I'm sure I have done it but um I find it a little bit off-putting now when I read a book it can become very sort of uh, static I think very kind of moment by moment yeah I think I, I think I agree other other um crime writers you would you would alert us to who are the crime writers crime writers oh god this is when my mind will go blank so there's a very strong community of crime fiction which is another great reason to do it everyone is extremely friendly and everyone knows each other because there's a lot of events and so on i was a big fan of erin kelly who is a friend of mine um she is just i think really really brilliant 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 prose writer but also really brilliant at structure and twists and particularly she wrote a book called he said she said a couple of years ago that i just think is a real modern masterpiece and i've read it about three or four times even though obviously i know what happens because the characters are amazing and the prose is amazing so that that's my favorite type of book is a sort of gripping thriller that's also well written so people like um susie steiner she wrote a kind of short series of, of detective fiction beautifully done um Sabine Durant is someone I really, really like. I think she's published four or five books and they've all been fantastic. Same thing, great characters, great writing, extremely gripping and suspenseful. Um, and then you've got this, there's like a lot of big hit, heavy hitters of procedural fiction, so people like Val McDermott, Mark Billingham. Um, I'm not such a huge fan of procedural fiction myself. I, I do tend to enjoy the thrillers a bit more. That's a great list. Thanks. That's really, I think anybody who's listening to this who uh wants a sense what to read what to read next we'll find find something there and i wanted to stick with that idea of the of being aware of your readership or being aware of the market how have you developed that awareness how does that actually work for you in your process 
I think if you were very, very smart, and I know writers that do do this, who are constantly trying to think like, what's the next big idea? What's the next big thing? And they will try to come up with an idea that is based on that. So people might be like, well, for say, for example, somebody, a writer I know, Claire McIntosh, has just brought out a book, um, which is set on a plane. Um, so brilliant idea. But there's also been like two or three other plane set thrillers have come out weirdly at the same time. So there's something in the zeitgeist there, I think, that people often end up with the same thing. I'd been saying for years that I thought serial killer fiction was coming back. And that, that does seem to be the case, actually. So things that are a bit darker, a bit gorier, perhaps... Um, so the markets, I really don't think people should chase the market because it's just so random and no one really knows. But there are trends. Um, so I suppose it's more like maybe not so much we're chasing the market, but we're all trying to come up with like, what is the next big thing? What is the big concept? What is the big twist? And I think we all we push each other as a community harder and harder to to find what those are. And what's the role of your editor in that? A lot of people on this podcast have talked interestingly about the editing process and their relationship with with their editor. So one thing I realised recently is that people don't understand what editing is outside of the industry. So people will say like, oh, but you're, so if I complain, I'm going to have to do editing. People will often say like, oh, but doesn't your editor do that? It's like, no, they do not. I wish they did. They just will tell me like what needs fixing, but I have to figure out how to fix it and do it all myself. So if you find a great editor, I've been working, I've been published by Amazon now for a while by their, their own publishing house. Um, and I've worked with, they have a sort of freelance development editor, which is not the same person as the commissioning editor. That's unusual. Um, and the, the the development editor that I've just worked with there has been really fantastic and really helped me to see how the book could be better. But in a way that I always feel, I never feel kind of like oh, I've done a bad job. It's always very inspiring. And I always think, oh yeah, that's, that's the perfect solution. Why didn't I think of that? And are there other people who would read for you or who you would always share drafts with? Uh, my agent is really great. So my agent used to be an editor, so she's very good on that. Um, and the amount of notes she'll give me kind of depends on whether the book is under contract already or whether it's something new that we're trying to sell. But sometimes if it's a new thing, we'll go through sort of five, six, seven drafts just for that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, because it's related to that then that I wanted to ask you about writing under under two names. So we've talked about the Claire McGowan, some of the Claire McGowan works. Uh, tell us about the, the the other bit of your writing persona and writing career. So I'd always I've always enjoyed reading different things, and, and like I said, it wasn't I didn't have my heart set on writing crime fiction, and I found myself so about eight years ago now I just got divorced and I was in a kind of a bad place I was kind of quite broke at the time and I just found myself writing a rom-com kind of to cheer myself up and I just really really enjoyed writing it so much it's actually still my favorite of all my books this book called The 30 List so just by kind of writing that on spec by myself I was able to go into a new genre and it's actually very common for writers to have pseudonyms so I know at least two writers that have like four or five pseudonyms for different things that they write. So um, people, I think people sometimes are confused as to why you use a different name, but it's just a kind of branding thing. So if people wanted to read one of my books and they were expecting crime and then they get a kind of frothy rom-com, that's probably annoying and probably vice versa. Does it make a difference to you? Do you feel today I'm Claire McGowan or today? Um, I've always been very open. I think some writers are encouraged to hide the fact that they're, they are their pseudonym. I've always just been completely open about it and I think I do more I do gravitate more naturally to crime so even when I've been writing some of my women's fiction it always ends up quite with quite a strong mystery in it just because having a mystery is I think such a great way to structure a book and to keep it gripping 
publishing does like to put you in a box to say like you write this but I've always read loads of different things and I really enjoy a good rom-com so it didn't seem that strange to me to write both and I've actually got a, I've got a literary novel now that I've that is out on submission so I'm hoping that might get published as well that would be a whole new thing for me It'd be much more mainstream that that would be amazing give us it's, it's not related to the one that you first wrote that isn't isn't published no it's not actually um if it, if it took off perhaps I could publish that one it's something I've been working on for 10 years actually I remember starting it 10 years ago and just thinking to myself I don't I don't know how to write this book yet I don't have the skills so I just put it aside and lockdown was really good lockdown was really good for like looking at digging up old projects and finishing them for me that's that's quite that's quite inspiring you you write you publish a lot don't you that's that must be you've got a lot of discipline and a lot of you know good good sort of work habits and all all of that yeah so I've got four books coming out this year um so I am actually slightly struggling to finish the book I'm working on at the minute and I think that's why I think I'm a little bit burnt out and like I was saying earlier about I used to get I get loads of ideas I actually don't at the minute I'm not getting that many ideas so I probably just need like a very long rest <laughs> unfortunately I don't have any time for that because I've got loads of things that need to be done in the next two months and are you more or less a, are you a full-time writer yeah so I used to teach um I used to run a, one of the MAs at City University which was great and I really enjoyed um but I had give that up about three years ago um I actually I'm going to do a little bit of teaching this term just because I don't know if you find this Emma but I really enjoy being at a university in the autumn there's some there's a kind of lovely energy about it I think yeah we're really excited about it um as you said at the beginning we're, we're uh, recording this uh, at the end of September so yeah we're just about it's all just about to come we're a bit nervous about it this year but very much I mean my my whole life has been about um you know the year turning in September much more than ever in January yeah and I really enjoy it I always think there's a great energy this time of year and loads of things get done and things happen and people come back from holidays in August and that's partly why I have so much work now is because everyone's come back but um yeah I really enjoy it so I think it'll be quite nice to be back I am going on campus I'm going to do hybrid teaching so I will be in the room and some people will be um, video conferencing in yeah I think we're all sort of preparing preparing for that for that mode um, but yeah it's it's great to hear, it's great to hear you remind us about the sort of excitement of of the of the year of the year starting maybe we can go back then to um, your memories of of Hartford because uh, listeners to this literary podcast uh, will know that um, one of the prompts for connecting with our writing community uh, and Hartfordians in print was thinking about uh, bookish Hartford uh, in in the context of the new library project. So we're uh, working hard to redevelop the library so there's more study space and uh, better um, accessibility uh, and good uh, storage for the archives and and rare books, and that so they'll be able to be used more as a sort of living part of the collection. Mm-hmm. But it's it's been really interesting hearing p- whether people were sort of you know library na- library mice or or not, whether they worked elsewhere in in Oxford. What 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 was your working in preferred working environment when you were here? I used to work in bed a lot actually, which is a, re- a really really bad habit. And if I now hear new writers talk about, oh, it's so great, I write in bed, I'm always like, no, you must not do that. It's so bad for your back. <laughs> I'm glad to say that it's bad for your back rather than in some moral moral sense. I always bang on about this. There's a few things I always bang on about to new writers. One is um, data storage and backing up your work. And one is um, looking after your neck and your wrists. So <laughs> don't use a laptop with a key, keypad or with a trackpad rather. And, you know, get a, get a proper desk, get a proper chair, all of this. 
That'd be great. Uh, I, after this, I'm just going to speak to our new freshers. And in fact, they would be just two really good pieces of advice for them. Yeah, data storage. I'd data say. storage and, and look after your spine. Yeah. Okay, I'll steal that. Exactly. So I always do tell them lots of horror stories in the first week so that hopefully scare them a lot into using Dropbox or something. Um, they used to work at the English Library quite a bit, um, but there's something about that building which is so incredibly soporific. I used to fall asleep quite often there. Yeah. And then, yeah, you used to work, work in the library in Hartford too, although that was just a kind of a fun place. Like, it was very peaceful, but you'd always sort of see people you knew and you could leave each other notes. Um, I don't know if it's still a 24-hour library, but it used to be you could just let yourself in at any point. So that was great. Like, I always just, I love libraries anyway, and I just always loved the atmosphere of going in there and people would be having various essay crises. And there were some people that, around finals we never really left the library so you would see them kind of with all their diet cokes and everything and their red bulls so that was never really me but i did certainly love going to the library um i used to, I suppose I used to work in the radcliffe camera as well sometimes it's one thing about hartford that we're actually you know really well uh re- really well placed and one of the design points about the new library which i um i think is really exciting is um a reading room which looks over has these you know amazing views over over Radcliffe Square, which will be views actually that no one's seen before. Looking looking down, which I think would be yeah really really uh, really inspiring. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. And I, um, I sometimes um, I got a membership to the British Library back well, before COVID, and I had sort of grand ideas of going there to work, but I sort of I seem to just need like a constant supply of cups of tea, and you obviously can't. They're very strict in the in the reading rooms of the BL about what you're allowed to take in. And it is very quiet. So I, th- I think one of the hazards of modern life is it's quite hard to find a very, very quiet place where no one's on their phone. So it is extremely quiet for that. But I sort of seem to need a little bit of life around the place. We have allowed keep cups uh, in the library rather to the librarian's um, dismay. Um, uh, but your mention of Diet Cokes and um, Red Bull, I should say these are not actually permitted in the library. <laughs> I'm misremembering, but I seem to recall people stopping up. No, no. Sometimes I, uh, I uh, see uh, Alice Rock, our wonderful librarian, on a, on a Monday, and she says oh, they'd ordered pizza again over the weekend. <laughs> this is twenty years ago, I should say as well. So. No, I, I, uh, I'm teasing you. I think, I think, yeah. Obviously, people do 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 that still in the library. It's very, trust- very trusting to have a twenty-four hour library. I think it does get abused, sadly. <laughs> Uh, yeah that's that's probably that's probably true but I suppose having been away from college for so uh, having us been away from college for so many months it's actually really nice thinking about those um those ways in which people just get together not necessarily uh, you know in the rules of what was expected but uh just you know uh find ways to um yeah to be together and we're looking forward to that yeah, I just always love kind of being around camp, being around the quads um, and just sort of seeing people walking around and going to lunch and, and dinner in the hall. And I think because it's such a small college, it was very nice in that way. You'd always run into people. Yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to getting that sense, that sense back um, over the coming over the coming weeks. Claire, it's been fantastic to talk to you for our literary podcast. I, I recommend the push as i've been saying uh tell us about tell us the name of the novel that's coming out next month uh, it's called i know you excellent excellent so look out look out for that um and there's a great back catalogue of clever gowan's work um uh, if you're interested to follow that up 
Join us again for the next Hartford Literary Podcast. And thanks to our guest, Clem Gowan, and to Hannah Baronzo, who has been uh, producing this podcast on behalf of the Development Office. Thank you.